being able to have the, the headspace to reflect on your lot in life and to, to change your position on your own terms because you understand what's happening to you, I think that is possibly the, the luckiest thing or the greatest fortune that I, has ever been bestowed upon me. My name's Andrew Lee and welcome to The Good Life, a podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. Although I'm a politician and an economist, this isn't a podcast about politics or economics. It's about living a good life, which is an idea that goes back to the Greek philosopher Aristotle. What Aristotle meant by a good life was the life that one would like to live, a life with pleasure, meaning and richness of spirit, the life that most of us were trying to live until everything else got in the way. In this podcast, I'll seek out guests, not because they're smart, but because they're wise. I'll speak with writers, athletes and social justice campaigners, with people who've been lucky and those who've experienced hard times. I've found their stories fascinating, and I hope you do too. I first met Brad Caranatha in 2012, when upon graduating from the Australian National University, he took it upon himself to run to Cape York. That's right, to the tip of Australia, some 4,900 kilometres away. The run took Brad around four months, and he did it to raise awareness of mental health after his father's battle with mental illness. He was recognised that year as the Young Canberra Citizen of the Year, and the following year, in 2013, set up an organisation at the Australian National University known as Youth in Action for Suicide Prevention. His website runs through some of the key stats. 128 marathons, 84 speeches, eight publications, and more than $36,000 raised for mental health research. He's currently doing a PhD in mental health and joins us today on the Good Life podcast to talk about mental well-being, extreme sports, and how to live a good life. Brad, thanks for being here today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me. So what got you into running? Ah. Uh, I think a teacher in primary school who took the time to say, let's do a little bit of training in the mornings before cross country. And I think it was someone showing that interest that just got me excited. And it's it's amazing how from little things, big things grow. So um, I I think I, you know, I was, I, was, I was good in primary school and I won the cross country there. But once I got to high school, I was by no means the best runner. There were a lot of kids that could beat me and... Um, and then that kind of fueled the fire, and it just kept building from there. So, um, yeah, I, I think an interesting combination of, of factors that's needed for motivation. Yeah. What do you enjoy most about running? The well, I think there's a lot. The challenge I think is one. Um, two is the headspace that it gives you, and uh, the forced reflection time. Um, and three is just the benefits of exercise, obviously, for your mental and physical health. Um, so the thing I find most fascinating about running um, is possibly the opposite of what other people, you know, what people don't enjoy about it. Is it, it forces you to battle or grapple with some pretty horrendous thoughts, um, potential boredom, and basically nothing in your head but your own thoughts of why am I doing this, that kind of internal struggle. And... Um, I find it an absolutely um, uplifting exercise because 
I have a particular view of that, um, of those thoughts, as if they're not a part of me, they're just a something that is conjured up by the activity itself. And it's a safe space in my own time to try and address those things as they come up. It's not that they are my thoughts. I'm probably getting very esoteric. No, no, that's yeah. interesting. So running is a time yeah. in, in some sense where you're, sounds as though you're almost doing the sort of work that some of us do when we're asleep, when we're, when we're dreaming and working through the day's problems. Uh, you, you use running to, as, a, as, as a way of solving challenges. I think that's a fantastic analogy for it because you can't exactly control what you're thinking about when you're, when you're running. I mean, to a certain extent, you can. You're sort of choosing the things, but it's not like you could write an essay while you're running. I don't know. Maybe you do, actually. <laughs> no way. Probably, yeah. um, you know, you can have some certain guidance around what you think while you're running. But I tend to find that, yeah, it's the things that tend to pop up in your head. And it gives you a chance to appreciate that you don't have control over a lot of your thoughts and you go on a bit of a journey of your thoughts as you're running. Um, and that appreciation, when you allow it to sort of spill out over into the rest of your life and you go, you know what, sometimes um, I'll feel a particular way and it's not necessarily a reflection of what I truly believe. It's a reflection of the circumstances that I'm in. Um, of course, those kind of thoughts are going to pop up. And that shouldn't make me right now want to quit. Um, it should make me reflect on the circumstances that have brought me to have these thoughts. Um, yeah. And you don't listen to music when you're uh, when you're running. You tend to. Uh, so on that run to Cape York for the first three thousand kilometres, I didn't listen to music, <laughs> and then for the next two, I did. Um, I found myself on a highway one day, just absolutely bored out of my mind, and. Um, I plugged in some music for the first time ever and it was just the most incredibly uplifting experience at the time that I just was hooked or addicted. It was just a, yeah, <laughs> so I couldn't stop at that point. So uh, so we'll come to the run in, the Cape York run in just a moment. Uh, as you got into, into marathons, um, you're pretty quick. I remember last time we went for a run together or the only time we've been for a run together uh, around Lake Burley Griffin, uh, you were pretty comf comfortably cruising, cruising along there. And uh, what, your best times low 240s, is that right? Uh, I'd like to say that's more of a predicted time because I haven't done a road marathon since I was 19. I'm 27 now. Go ahead. Which I think it's, it's, it's a, you know, a topic we'll probably keep coming back to is motivation. Um, I've done a few other races like, you know, for City to Surf times, I've done a 48 in the City to Surf. Um, my, you know... Furthest distance travelled in 24 hours is 154 kilometres, including all the obstacles and things like that. But, yeah, sorry for the marathon. It's 253, actually, is what I did back in the day. Um, and I've been contemplating going back and doing it again. But um, I, can't, I can't get myself to want to do the marathon. I can get myself to want to do a half. And I'll tell you why. Um, there's certain thresholds that... Uh, you have like walls that you hit. Like you hit the wall when you when you do a marathon. You get to a certain point where you've expend, you, you can expend all the uh, glycogen that you have readily, readily available and you drop dramatically. Um, there's sort of similarly a wall mentally um, in that you get to a point where if you know how to treat your body like a machine, um, how to describe this, um, 
and you do so, you're kind of capable of completing any activity, even past that um, uh, that the physical wall of you know when you're burning the fat and it's absolutely exhausting, but you're still monitoring all your calorie intake and then you just keep going. Um, but you get to this point where you achieve whatever is possible at extreme distances and you go, what now? I'm not mentally challenged anymore by this. I'm not, there's nothing motivating me to, to do this anymore. It's, this is silly. Um, I need something that throws me back into a space where I'm, I'm mentally in a state of, ah, I don't know. And, and I find that the shorter events um, are more likely to give that to you. So lately I've been training for more of the shorter events. Right. Not that I've got around to <laughs> doing them, but yeah. Uh, and uh, and your run up to Cape York, how many kilometres would you be running on a typical day, and how how were you organising you organising your day there? Uh, so I I ran on average fifty three a day um, on the days that I ran. I stopped it off and talked to a lot of schools, um, so I was running about five out of seven days a week, um, and this was all carrying a backpack. I didn't have a support crew with me. Um, I, I had some offers for a support crew, but I, I turned those down um, because I wanted to be able to go wherever, you know, on any given day, run on the beach, take a small backtrack, do things that would keep it interesting. And so, like I think you covered at the start, that it's it's 4,900 or so kilometres to Cape York, but anyone who knows the geography of Australia knows that it's not actually 5,000 kilometres between here. Well... Uh, as you follow the highways and the tip of Cape York, I, I literally added an extra 2,000 kilometres by by going the, the, the path less travelled, you know, um, to keep it interesting. Um, and that was the thing that was motivating me to, to keep going. Um, yeah, there's not many people who, if they had to run to the tip of Cape York, would choose to make some of that route to go go over sand. Uh, the, yeah. so the decision to put beach running in the middle of middle of an endurance race is a uh, an interesting one. Yeah, yeah. The best and worst day was Fraser Island, like it's an entire sand island, and I think I did <laughs> in excess of seventy kilometres. And you know, running up the east side of it. And it takes so long that, you know, you see the tide come in and yes. start to go out again and you're still running with the coast on your right and the, the land. But it's at the same time so beautiful that you're like, where else would I rather be right now? Yes. Like, why would I want to be on a highway because it's faster with meow, meow, just sort of, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so, you might have got a bit of the meow, meow with the yeah. four-wheel drives in the east coast of Fraser Island. but uh... Yeah, yeah, that's true. A little bit of that or people going... What are you doing? Watch out for dingoes. <laughs> <laughs> All that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, you got to a point in that run where you stopped, didn't you? Where, uh, as I recall, you're about three quarters of the way up and, and you found that mentally you were sort of struggling to be able to go on. Yeah. Tell me about that. Um, there are a couple of points. The, that one that you're referring to there was a time that I... I was a bit Gen Y and uh, see, I was only relying on my phone um, for maps and the battery died unexpectedly and I was lost and um, it ended up being about a 70k day and I found myself in a, in a region, it was, it was flooding in 2012 a lot, especially up around Bundaberg where I was and um, I found myself having to cross flooded rivers without a choice, well unless, I don't know, I was going to backtrack a lot essentially. Anyway. Um, 
silly decision, but I did. And it just all the factors just mounted on top of them, themselves all at once. And I remember feeling like um, just in sheer agony, like I was um, delirious, like I was drunk, but um, feeling all the pain, like feeling the sand in my blisters and and everything and just absolutely overwhelmed. And um, I stopped and I think I rested once I got to town um, for about three days there just to um, let myself show a bit of self-care, I suppose, to get to acknowledge that I just pushed a boundary that I didn't expect to cross and to say, that's okay, I'll take some time out and go again. Um, a lot of people um, ask the question, did you ever feel like quitting? And I think moments like that, or there's a couple of other examples, are times where, um, like in theory, yes, I, I, I was, um, but I think this comes back to what I was saying at the, the start, where um, I expect those thoughts to come up and the fact that I'm thinking them doesn't mean that I believe them. Um, and so in some ways it's a hard question to answer. Yes, of course I felt like quitting, but it's not what I embodied and I expected it to happen. So, And I expected to need to take a few days out, if it ever happened, to keep going. Um, so to me there was no question at all that I was going to continue. There was no doubt in my mind because... Um, the whole purpose of the journey was the challenge and that those things were going to arise. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, I spent, like I actually spent literally um, time sitting with a coffee and a notepad writing down the kind of thoughts that would happen um, while I was like running up to the tip um, ahead of time. And it's not the kind of thing you can do uh, without having done a heap of running already um, because you've got to throw yourself into some pretty horrible situations to, to discover some of the, the horribly creative things that your brain comes up with to convince you to not do something. Um, but when you preempt them, it's just this incredible feeling of, huh, I saw that coming. Like it, 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 in, in the sense of neuro-linguistic programming, because you'd already associated that thought with mm. the, the calm time that you were sitting down and the alternate perspective through which you can view the same situation triggers straight back to that first thought and um and like the impact is just dulled massively of these horrendous thoughts so um yeah yeah that was i i think a crucial aspect of of what helped me to keep going through those really tough moments yeah and how did it feel to to finish was it pure exhilaration or was there a bit of you that sort of felt some sadness that the journey was over? Um, yeah, a bit of both. Um, the moment when I, like there's literally this rainforest up there and then pristine white beaches and, and, and the moment I burst out of that onto the beach, I was like, I am here. Like this is a destination if ever there feels like a destination. And um, I... Made, way to, made my way to the top and just sat there for a while and, and then realised that I'd had an expectation that by the time I got there, maybe some kind of enlightenment would have hit me, I would have learned something about myself. or um, And that felt rather dissatisfying. Um, that made me reflect back to a time on the run that a person had said to me, like this um, sort of some guidance of um, the, the, the truth at the top of the mountain 
is the truth, is the only, the truth at the top of the mountain is the truth that you bring with you. As in there's nothing up there other than what's already in there. And I just spent four months with nothing but my own thoughts, you know, six hours a day churning through them. And I'd, if there was a leaf to overturn, I'd overturned it. And yet I was dissatisfied with that it felt like there was meant to be something more and there wasn't. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I started to realise actually it's really quite simple. I am what I am. There's not much more to it. It's pretty straightforward. And um, um, then that kind of has a calming effect as well of like don't overthink it. Don't worry. <laughs> Did friends and family notice differences about you after that, during that uh, that run? Um yeah, I think I was a bit more bold in general and confident to to say I want to do this or I want to do that. And mm, people mm. would say, well, you probably are going to do that then if you're saying that's what you're going to do, <laughs> um, which is interesting in its own right um, because, um, you know, I suspect some of the motivation when I, I started was like I told people, I'm going to do this. And um, they said, no, you're not. Don't be ridiculous. That's impossible. And, and you can sometimes be fueled by that that challenge of, oh, okay, actually, well, and, and, you know, in hindsight, well, no, post the run, when you say I'm going to do something, people go, well, good on you, go for it. And um, you have to start, I suppose, being more, way more intrinsically driven, not that I wasn't already, I suppose, but, um, but even more so because you, you, you really pick your own goals for their own sake and not because of what anyone else mm. think about them. Mm. Um, which you know maybe segues a bit to the to the PhD because I, I've found that to be a similar journey to the run to Cape York, um, but um, a mental equivalent. So, um, if not more challenging, actually, <laughs> um, yeah, just because the parameters are just so much more complex than I will keep moving in a straight line. <laughs> Are you are you finding that uh, it's about sort of uh, not knowing exactly where you're going in the PhD and, and knowing uh, knowing clearly with the run up to Cape York what the direction was that you had to take? Cape York's more about execution, whereas the PhD is more about sort of mapping the path. Yeah, because you know the path in the um, in the run, and knowing the pathway to your goal is it just is the crucial factor to making it a reality. Um, if you don't know the pathway, you're hoping you're not setting goals. You know, yeah. Um, but with the PhD, you know, like the whole point of the PhD is to learn the process um, because it's a process you'll repeat again in an academic career. And so your pathway is your supervisor and they're teaching you as you go. And um, so it feels like at times a bit more of a lost feeling than you do when you can pinpoint yourself on a map and just know we have to keep on going. Um, yeah. And then I think there's, a, there's all sorts of other factors to the PhD, isn't it, of like being overly ambitious and realising that your um, the achievements of the PhD and research will be so much smaller than you initially expected when you started and to be... Um, to be happy with that, to not create problems by attempting to achieve more than is possible. So, Yeah, I launched a uh, book on wealth inequality by Michael Schneider on Monday night and uh, was, was reflecting on how your attitudes to research change as you go through your career. Michael is um, 
at the emeritus professor stage of his uh, his his career and I was just reflecting on the fact that when you start you think you can do it all by yourself you think you can focus on the world's biggest problems and everyone will care about your problems and that you can solve the problems yeah and then you know Michael at the end of his career realizes he can't do it by himself so he brings on two co-authors to work on the book uh, he realizes sometimes issues wax and wane and it just so happens that inequality is a hot topic right now but that's uh, that's not something that's just driven by him that's that's the world around him and and he realizes that he's not going to answer all the questions, so he lays out an enormous amount of raw data that others can pick up on and, and build on. Um, yeah, and I remember my everybody told me during the PhD, oh, this is the best time, you won't have any other distractions, you'll love throwing yourself into research. But actually I found it much more stressful than being a junior academic where I just didn't have the the time and performance pressures weren't as acute and I could have a much larger range of projects than on the PhD where there was a, a major paper, piece of work that just had to be had to be good. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that the methodology is good, that you yeah, can't, you can't yeah. make a compromise and say, you know what, for the sake of productivity, for the sake of getting these ideas out there, I am just going to publish this because it will be accepted. Whereas, you know, I've, I've had my supervisor saying, yes, it might be publishable, but will the examiner, <laughs> right. what will they think? Right. And you go, oh, what? Doesn't that mean I'm already to, ready to be an academic then if I can publish? But no, not necessarily. There's different qualities of research, so, mm, mm. of course. So um, you've got to work on that as well. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, going back to exercise, you then moved after the after the run. You then moved into a different frame, which was these uh, tough mudder competitions. Uh, and about a year ago, you were in the United States competing in this uh, uh, somewhat terrifying sounding uh, com competition, uh, where you end up finishing third in the world. But but tell me about the uh, the, the race itself. It was a, a series of laps, wasn't it? Yep, yep. So it was a five-mile circuit, um, 8Ks that is, and uh, about 20 obstacles per lap. And you start at around midday, and um, it's in the desert in Nevada, so it's actually quite hot in, in the middle of the day, um, in the 20s, and... Uh, then dramatically drops down to about one degree uh, overnight and the winds pick up a lot and you have to run in a wetsuit to keep warm um, and you're in and out of water. Um, and all these obstacles like a, you know, a, a 10 metre cliff, a, um, some absurd ones like, um, do you remember the game Operation where you had to... Um, get the organs out of a patient without touching the sides. Mm. Well, it's like that, but a big adult-sized version where you're putting a pole through um, a hole. And if you touch the sides, you're standing in a pool of water and just the, the electricity just flows through you and completes the circuit through the pole. That you... Ouch. It's, um, they design it to be like a combination of like physically absolutely grueling and, and mentally um, intimidating. And um, so... Throwing yourself at that for 24 hours straight requires you to be able to have just extreme calmness of mind um, because, yeah, no, just simply it's just such a horrendous event. And I, I only did it once. Um, I have no real intention of going back anytime soon. <laughs> um, I see a lot of guys go back the following year who like placed high but not won it. Um, and they continually, um, well, there's a lot of guys who drop out, like 
mid-race because um, there's something about, first of all, the motivation of the challenge, and then once you've, you've, you've done it, you've completed the challenge once, the only thing left to motivate you is that top spot. And if you're, if you're not in that position, then um, you just get thrown into a world of hurt that you didn't expect because you've lost your motivation. It feels like you're not going to win. Um, and I know that that isn't what motivates me at the moment. I know that um, being hell-bent on getting first rather than third and compromising on all the other things in my life, like um, the PhD and, and mental health research, um, is, is just not a priority. And so I don't want to throw myself back into a situation like that again um, because I suspect it won't end well. <laughs> so for you, yeah. it was more about an, achieving an absolute standard rather than a relative one. Um, yes, yes. That, that, would, that would sum it up pretty well. Um, I th yeah, I am just not that obsessed with it. Um, to make it a relative standard that I want to be better mm. or the best in the world at it. There's just too many other interesting things to do, um, really. Um, so, but you yeah. have done you've done these extreme sports that have brought you face to face with a higher level of pain than uh, uh, at least most. Most men will in in Australia will have faced. Uh, let's put childbirth off to off to one side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, how did you? How do you prepare yourself for uh, for that pain? You talked before about writing things down in a in a in a notebook, uh, but in training, how do you how do you raise your pain threshold? Because that seems important to anyone that does serious uh, uh, exercise in the endurance sphere. Yeah, so I think it's a really long term pursuit. Um, I think there's some aspects of motivation that you can you can gain overnight, um, but tolerance of pain, yes, is, is is something quite different. In that, um, w there's two sides to it. Um, one is that you get used to it the more that you have of it. It's a bit like you know, how do you boil a frog? You, you just very gradually, slowly bring up the temperature, and and it's just a normal part of life. Um, but the other is that you, at the same time, um, you learn to associate pain with growth. Um, and, and so, you know, you have what you call good pain, I call good pain or bad pain. And um, good pain is anything that's not an actual injury. Um, and to me, injury type pain is quite distressing. In fact, I, during that run, I started taking painkillers for the first time ever in an event because I could sense something that was genuinely a problem in my knee. Um, and that made me go, well, this is actually not good. This is not a growth kind of pain. Mm -hmm. um, and so, um, yeah, yeah. When it, when it becomes that simultaneously when you're feeling the pain, you're thinking, this is great, this is good for me, um, then, um, then it motivates you to do even more of it. But yeah, I, I suspect maybe to throw out there that there's an element of some sort of genetics or something like that as well. I have a flashback of a memory um, to a Carols by Candlelight in like early 2000s where um, I was bored and I decided to drip the wax of the candle all over my hand until I'd made a, a cast of my hand that I could then just take off at the end of the evening. And reflecting back on that as like, 
a child doing that. I'm like, that is, that is absurd. Why would you do that? And what, <laughs> like, <laughs> very painful. So yeah, there must be something in there that, yeah, I, I haven't tapped into or understood yet as to where that came from or the tolerance of that. Yeah. Uh, it seems as though for you that kind of good pain is is part of your notion of, of a good life, uh, stretching your body to, to do things it, uh, it it couldn't do yesterday. Mm. Uh, do you associate that with that that good pain of exercise with being happy? Yeah, definitely. And I think I'm really fortunate to have had the chance to introduce myself to that pain, so to speak, on my own terms. Um, what I think... Not everyone in life is lucky enough to have to have a really, let's say, a privileged, calm upbringing that allows mm. me to gradually expose myself to that kind of thing on my own terms. Um, and so it's something that you feel safe venturing out further and further out into because you've always felt safe at the level that you're at because you're in control of it. And I, I guess... Um, a sense that for, for other people who've been in a world of turmoil from a young age, pain is associated with something, yeah, you want to run from, of course you do. Um, that makes complete and utter sense. Um, and so uh, being able to have the, the headspace to reflect on your lot in life and to, to change your position on your own terms because you understand what's happening to you, I think that is possibly the the luckiest thing or the greatest fortune that I, has ever been bestowed upon me. Mm. Um, mm. And and so yeah, if, if there's something that I think is the essence of um, a good life or a lucky life, it's that. And um, yeah, it's 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 a sad set of affairs that not everyone can necessarily have that. Um, or I'd love to, like, I'd, I'd love to find a way that people can have more of that. But I, yeah, you can, you can get a head start, or you know, not so for others. Yeah. And that notion of pain as being providing a sense of control. I mean, I think of the the sort of negative side of that is uh, people who cut themselves in order to. Uh, to feel a connection to reality, often, often, you know, in stories as to why people have inflicted self harm, it has a lot. The, the the phrase that you hear again and again is is because that was the only thing that felt real. Mm. Um, and uh, yeah, so yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting thinking about your the, the way the way in which you and and to a lesser extent I sort of use that that pain of ex exercise as uh, as as a way of of enjoying and experiencing life, and then between the two extremes of sort of self-cutting and uh, doing hill sprints, presumably lies children uh, dripping wax onto their hands <laughs> yeah, during, yeah, during, during exactly. Silent Night. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of thing, yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Self-harm is a is a coping mechanism, mm. um, not a suicidal tendency necessarily. And um, yeah, quite possibly good could be some parallels between the kind of self-harm that's. Um, you know, it, it's idolised, isn't it, being brilliant at, at exercise? But what if there is, like, a really strong parallel between the two? Um, should we idolise that? I don't know. Mm. It's, it's one of those questions of um, that comes back to uh, mental illness as abnormal or mental illness as um, maladaptive to your well-being. And um, where do you draw the lines around how much of either of those defines a mental illness? Yes. Um, so... 
anyway. <laughs> so tell me about what got you into mental health research and say as, as much or as little about your father's experiences as you feel is appropriate to share. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, so growing up, see, I've talked about this a lot. As you said, I've given a lot of speeches, so I feel comfortable. It's fine on his part as well. Um, uh, growing up, seeing a father who well, had depression, but I didn't know it, um, who didn't seem to enjoy the most, get the most out of life, um, struggled to get up, all those kind of things. Um, I associated that not with um, a mental illness, but with working life, with he was a lawyer, and, and I wouldn't touch that with a 10-foot pole. And it wasn't until second year uni that um, he told us that um, he was undergoing treatment and that he had depression and... Um, things turned around for him in the space of a year, which was um, r- quite quick in the, in the, in the scheme mm, of things. Mm. Um, but it came from a combination of um, him taking up medication at the same time as cognitive therapies. Um, what's so crucial about that, let me, let me go on a tangent, because there's a lot of people who are adverse to uh, medication um, or as well the work of, of therapies. But um, medications, they give you the headspace to be able to apply the thinking um, and the work that's involved in the therapies to reshape the way that you think. Um, And I guess that's an element of what I was talking about before, of of being given that headspace, the chance to reflect on your situation without all those Mm. intruding negative thoughts is absolutely invaluable. And so, of course, they're not the complete and utter solution but like that was a crucial component in in him getting the headspace to apply the therapies to change his lifestyle to involve more healthy behaviors like playing sport again which he hadn't done in in a long time and um uh and to get back on track in a relatively fast amount of time and and so the transition was so relatively quick that the contrast was absolutely stark and and it left me going yeah, of course. Wow. Okay. Yeah, it was. These, these mental health issues, they're real for sure. And that's what was going on here. And um, I was already at the time doing um, a Bachelor of Psychology because I think the brain is fascinating and the mind is fascinating. Can, yes. you, can you tell from <laughs> how I talk and what I talk about? Um, and uh, it just dawned on me that, yes, of course, this was a um, – an obvious pursuit to, to, to do something for charity, um, to raise awareness of mental health issues because um, they're so stigmatised still. Mm. Um, and so since then, though, it's interesting. I mean, you you ask me about my father because that's the thing that I've told most people about. But ever since I raised my hand and said, I care about this issue, this is really something that's meaningful to me, I so many people have reached out and said, it affects me too. I haven't told anybody, but it affects me too. And now it's something I regard, it's it's just, yeah, yeah. It's relevant to all of us. It's not just my dad. And it's um, something that motivates me in this space continually. Because even though people don't talk about it necessarily on the surface all the time, you know it's there. Yes. Yeah. Yes, and as you say, there's sort of a spectrum of views and the roles of role of medication but it's always seemed strange to me to take the view that medication is fabulously useful for everything from the neck down and completely useless from everything from the neck up uh yeah but but how do we uh in our own lives 
become more receptive to people who are struggling with issues of mental well-being. Uh, we can't all sort of get publicity for running up to uh, Cape York and thereby become role models to whom people feel comfortable confiding. Yeah. Uh, how can we be more open to, to being and more useful to people around us uh, in their mental health challenges? Yeah, so I gave a, a TED talk recently at TEDx Camera, and um, I deliberated for a long time about the pitch that uh, the angle that I would take with that of how to spread a message about that, how to shift your mindset around mental health without talking in the usual narrative of mental health. Because I think there's a lot of people who straight away switch off when they hear we're talking about mental health and you should be more respectful of people with mental health issues. Um, so I wanted to turn it back towards what people, what they understand uh, about themselves. And um, so what I chose to talk about is this, this topic of, of did I ever feel like quitting and, and um, if so, why, why not? Um, mm. What helped me through that? And I talked about the mind and how I used um, ways of essentially preempting my own thoughts um, to, to override them to, to, to get myself there. Um, and if, if I could sum all of that up in just a much more succinct way, it, it would be to say um, that you are not in control of your own choices. You are not in control of your own thoughts. Um, but you have the capacity um, to reflect on them because your brain <laughs> has um, multiple components to it and can see other parts. Um, and one part can change another part. Um, and my, the source of all my um, strength of will is, is not a muscle. It's um, a carefully constructed system of thoughts reflecting of themselves so that they always lead back to a choice that goes this direction mm. um, and, and seeing that ahead of time. And, and so, yeah, maybe it, do, it doesn't work so well when I describe it in a short way, but most people subscribe to the belief that they have strength of will. Um, and that they can exert a choice of their own accord, independent of influences. Mm. Um, it's fascinating that that people think this way because intuitively they 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 think differently when it comes to their kids and where they'll pick that they'll go to school or something like that because they assume that the choices that their children will make will be influenced by everything around them. But they see themselves quite differently, and that's because inside your own head. You're not even aware of all the things that are feeding, like all the unconscious processes that are feeding into the choices that you make. So it feels like you're making a choice. Mm. It's really appealing mm. and intuitive um, to see that you're making a choice. Um, and But if you let go of that idea and choose instead to believe, and I know that sounds ironic, um, but because of you know, you're now hearing this idea, you have the capacity to see it differently and think, Actually, no, I am an influence of all these things around me, but how could I restructure these things around me to change my situation? Um, then I, I might stand a better chance than just trying harder because trying harder doesn't really, it, it often doesn't lead to the thing that you want to do. Absolutely. And the point of all that, it's not to overnight change everyone's opinion about mental health issues. It's, it's quite a long roundabout way of getting people to appreciate that um, what goes on in your head is not your fault or in your control and you can't just magically snap out of it by trying harder, snap out of depression or snap out of an eating disorder. Um, it's that to change these things in your mind takes 
a lot of um, yeah, a lot of effort, a lot of a lot of time dedicated to reflecting and understanding how this process on your mind works. Um, and I think people, when they adopt that mindset, I believe they'll they'll reap the same benefits that I think I have and start to go, you're right, this is a better take on the world. Um, I, I'm not going to just magically change my choices. I, I, I'm going to think about and plan how I'm going to change my behavior and um, and then apply that same thinking um, to, to a person of whatever circumstance they're in. Um, and, I mean, that perfectly summarizes people with mental health issues. It's, it's not that they chose to be that way. It's a combination of genetic, social, uh, environmental, all sorts of factors that have, have led them to that situation. Um, and it's a complex situation to get out of because you've mm. got to disentangle yourself from all those things um, from within that headspace already. Um, and so already having the view that you can't get out of that by simply willing it to be so mm. is the crucial first step in being able to do so. So, um, yeah, yeah. Sorry, that's a rather long explanation of no, how true. that's relevant to. Yeah. But I, I just um, see it comes back to what my PhD's on at the moment. I um, I, I study internet support groups. Um, and the influence of peer support on, on people. Um, because one of the greatest problems that the mental health sector faces is that the vast majority of people don't seek out any professional kind of help. Mm. What good is there in inventing the newest, greatest therapy when the majority of people still don't want it because yes. they believe that there are other ways of dealing with the problem, that they'll deal with it by themselves? Um, and so... One in is um, a person who's already been there is someone you'll much more likely listen to. Um, and, uh, yeah, anyway, that's why I'm fascinated by that topic for my PhD. Yes. Yeah, how you change behaviour there. How far are you from finishing now? Pretty close. I've published five papers and the sixth is, like, on its way and I have to submit it to be able to submit the thesis. So, fingers crossed, it'll happen, you know. See the end, yeah. end, the end of the tunnel there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let me uh, wrap up with a handful of questions that I uh, ask all of the uh, the podcast guests. Uh, what advice would you give to your teenage self? Uh, <laughs> um, I think it would. I really wouldn't like to give something that was prescriptive that said do this because I think it wouldn't take me very far. I think it would lead me down a dead-end road. Um, I think I would prefer to to give myself some sort of puzzle, mm. um, some thought that uh, something like um, the greatest challenge of all is disentangling this um, uh, free will versus not or... Um, that science is actually an art or something really quizzical that's kind of true but, and to get myself on that track earlier. You would uh, pose your teenage self a mind puzzle that uh, that would take several marathons to untangle. To unta yeah, right, yeah right. exactly, because um, I, I don't see that there's any other path that needed to be on, just you need to be on those paths to try and disentangle those questions earlier. Why hmm. not? I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> What's something you used to believe but no longer do? Um... I used to think that social psychology was um, 
airy-fairy nonsense. And um, I went through uni and found at the end of it that it was the most important of them all. Um, because we are inherently social beings, we would not have evolved to be what we are if it wasn't for all the social interactions that drive behaviour. Um, and and that's at the heart of the explanation for many of the things of why we are like we are. Um, and yeah, yeah, that's what I, I used to think it was a waste of time. It was just all about interesting facts about how people interact. Yes. It's the be-all and end-all in my mind, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the well, curious psychology, thing, yeah. The curious thing, I am talking to a mate about this the other day, um, we, of course, haven't uh, evolved in any kind of genetic change sense um, for the last... You know, if you, you can go back, go back the last couple of thousand years, evolution is a, is a very slow process. And so, in a sense, we are genetically the same as the human beings who lived in groups of a couple of hundred uh, in, in small, small communities dotted around the world. And so it's that, it's that small group social psychology that, we're, that our genetic evolution uh, fitted us for. Yep. Um, and now it's fundamentally different and... Yes. And 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 do you know all about memetics? The no. field of memetics? No. Absolutely tell me more. fascinating. Richard Dawkins uh, probably greatest contribution, I think. Oh, is, this is the idea of memes. Yes. Yes, the yes. idea of memes, yeah, exactly. And and you know, when you look at yourself as a product of a whole lot of organisms, like all mm. the microbiota in your gut that are necessary to bring like for you to exist and operate, digest food. Um you look at society and think it resembles a human or an organism so well of like cells flowing along highways and yes. the thing that holds itself together and, and, and the invisible hand that seems to guide um, the way it operates. And then you can see memes like ideas flow through it very much with the same way that thoughts flow through our network of neurons in our brains. And you start to go, memetics is the new genetics. Um, and to watch us evolve, you have to keep your eye on what memes are interacting and um, and which ones are likely to be um, dominant. And, yeah, anyway, we don't want to – let's not go too far down into that. But um, being ahead of that requires, you know, a super high level of reflection on, on all of this stuff. But, uh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my favourite bit of uh, Richard Dawkins' God Delusion is where – the person, the, the the scientist who has throughout his career argued that uh, the most evolutionarily advantageous traits are those that persist generation to generation, now has to confront the fact that he doesn't believe in God, but most people in the world do. Uh, yeah. And there's, uh, the, the, discussion, the discussion of memes there is, uh, is, is very interesting. Yes, yeah, exactly. Uh, when are you most happy? When I'm with my friends and family, simple as that. Um, not when I'm running. <laughs> that, that comes to mind, yeah, friends right. and family. What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Oh, well, that's the running. That's for sure. That's without <laughs> a doubt. I still do it, you know, five days a week. So. Do you have a favourite spot to run? Uh, I've just moved house. Um, I used to run around Black Mountain a lot. Now I'm up around Mugger, um, out Mugger Mugger and uh, along Red Hill and that kind of thing. Uh, but, yeah, I think my favourite spot to run in Canberra is what's called the Summit Trail around... Uh, sort of the, the shoulders of Black Mountain, if you will. It's about 1,500 metres around. So to run up to that and then around it and back down again is my favourite run. So it's all it, it's bush running that, uh, that, that you enjoy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you have any guilty pleasures? 
Uh, a million. Um, I, I, my friends tell me I'm the, the unhealthiest healthy person that they know. Um, and, and this, like, it's actually... There's the motorbike that you rode. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. That seems like a guilty pleasure. All sorts of, all sorts of things. That, yeah. Um, I, I think that um, I am, I'm ter- I've got the most terribly, pathetically um, weak strength of will, right? Let's, let's say that's the case because I am such <laughs> a, can't be right, a glutton right? for, pre- for pleasure. But I find a way of, of, of putting myself or taking myself out of temptation's way. And because of that, mm. I go, I need to structure my own environment in a way that I'll never be tempted in the first place. Um, that's interesting. Because, I, because when, yeah, it's, it's like why don't shop when you're hungry. Because you'll buy all, you know. Mm. And if you understand these things about your own behavior, then you find ways of avoiding the temptation in the first place. And, and perhaps the less, yeah, as I say. So give me an example in, uh, in your own life of things that, uh, that I would do. Oh, well, there, a, there's a temptation one. that you restructure your life, life to avoid. Um, there's one don't shop when you're, when you're hungry um, because you're more likely to buy all the things that, that you shouldn't have. Um, or I restructure my life to, um, like, I can't resist. I eat all the donuts and all that, you know, and soft drink and things like that. I think I told you how on the run, I, I gained seven kilos on the run drinking soft drink at one point <laughs> and had to like cut back down. Like I, so I lost 11, then put on seven. Um, but the obsession with exercise counterbalances the obsession with food. And it's just like a way of rounding out right, right. your life. And, but, but obviously the exercise has to be fun. It's not a, it's not a punishment for me. Yeah. Yeah. If you, run a hundred kilometers a week you can basically eat like a 15 year old yeah yeah exactly exactly um and finally which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life um i think the thing that really kicked it off like there's some really influential people along the way that maintain the motivation but i got obsessed with um thoreau's question about uh living life not a question a statement about i wish to live life deliberately and I thought, what does that mean deliberately? And I thought about it a lot. And um, it probably embodies a lot of the way you can probably hear that I, I speak, that I try to understand and make choices very deliberately, not be influenced by my own, um, well, thoughts without control over them or in my environment. It's, it's to really understand them and shape it myself. Um, so I think that that was the seed of a very influential train of thinking for me Hmm. well brad karen arthur uh endurance sportsman and mental health researcher thanks for taking the time to speak on the good life podcast today thank you andrew thanks for listening to this week's episode of the good life if you like the good life why not let your friends know through facebook or your favorite social media channel next week i'll talk with tim costello on compassion and storytelling